Welcome to show 35 of the C-Suite podcast, which is being recorded at PR Week's strategic internal communications event that is taking place at the wonderful venue of the Royal Institute of British Architects here in London. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show, you'll know that we covered internal comms and employment engagement very recently in show 33, actually. Uh, but of course, there's so much to cover in this area, we wanted to talk to a few more people in that space. Of course, if you're not a regular listener, um, but have uh, an interest in internal comms, do go back and listen to that show. Uh, there are three great interviews with representatives from Skoda, Lloyds Bank and IBM. But joining me now to kick off today's show, having uh, just delivered his keynote address at the conference, is Drew McMillan, who is Head of Internal Communications and Innovation at Virgin Train. So welcome to the podcast, Drew. Hi, Ross. Uh, now, the theme of the morning uh, here is about creating a more agile, digital and customer-focused culture in the business. Um, and Drew, you spoke about creating an amazing place to work, is uh, I think how you, you talked about it, uh, by borrowing techniques from customer insights. Yeah, so uh, I work for uh, a Virgin brand, and as most people know, Virgin is uh, an entirely customer-led brand. It's what we're all about. Uh, you know, we're, we're big in the consumer space, whether it's our planes, our trains, our, our gyms, or whatever. Um, and we invest accordingly in understanding our customers. What I think we don't do historically is invest near as much effort and uh, and energy into understanding our people. Uh, I think like most employers, we think that an annual survey is probably pretty much all that's required, yeah. plus some bits and bobs around the edges. And I wanted to look at a very fundamentally different way of applying customer insight to an internal audience. Yeah, it's interesting. You're talking about comparing how much time you spend looking internally to external customers. You, you put up a, a, a stat about how much companies actually spend which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, so this is based in, in no way on scientific, right. rigorous fact. It's my, it's my gut instinct, having spoken to a lot of other uh, practitioners in, in my kind of shoes. Um, big consumer brands, obviously, we do spend often millions and millions every year in understanding our customers, and rightly so. Um, the number I seem to have come up with in terms of how much we spend on it, understanding our people is it's, it's way less than 10% of what we're spending on, on customer insight. Yeah. Uh, and yet, so many businesses use that mantra of, you know, our people being our most valuable asset. Well, you know, why aren't they investing accordingly and understanding that asset? Absolutely. So I guess the, the key message that, that you were giving this morning is about listening in, in real time as well. Yeah, I think um, we've moved away from this notion that you you ask an audience once a year or twice a year how they feel about X, Y, Z things. Um, and then it probably takes you quite a bit after asking them to actually do anything about what they've told you. Yeah. Um, in the new world that we, we live in now, whether you're a millennial or not, uh, you expect to be listened to an awful lot more uh, often than you expect your input to be acted on much more quickly. So we want to get to a place, I don't think we're ever going to be fully always on with our internal uh, measurement, uh, but certainly a lot more frequent than, than the annual or biannual survey. Yeah. So tell us about this uh, orsometer that uh, you showed. And um, f again, for the benefit of the listeners, what I'll do, hopefully I can share some of the slides that you presented today. So there was a great dashboard that, that you talked about, which, which is your real-time uh, yeah. measurement, really, isn't it? So the orsometer uh, was originally a, a customer insight tool. So we aggregate thousands of bits of customer data uh, what our customers are telling us about uh, about Virgin Trains uh, all the time, every day. Um, 
we fire out surveys to people when they get off of our trains via their mobile device. We have all sorts of other ways of listening to how our customers are feeling about things. And all of that is aggregated into a dashboard called the Awesometer, because it's a measure of how awesome we are behaving. And so it's very true to Virgin yeah. in, 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 in that sense. Um, we are recreating the same Awesometer approach internally uh, with a dashboard that will not only give us an aggregated sense of uh, how our people are feeling um, on a four-weekly basis, so it's not quite always on, but four-weekly is an awful lot more than you know what used to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as sub-components of uh, the overall sort of temperature as measured by the osometer, we can look at components such as trust, empowerment, engagement, um, and those are really important indicators for us if we're to perform best as a business and therefore give the best experience yeah. to the customer. I want to ask you actually about um, sort of like the kind of like in more detail the data that you're collecting. I'll, I'll come on to that in a second. But just out of interest, when you're looking at, at um, sort of measuring uh, people's views and, and feelings and you know using social media as, a, as an example with customers in particular, mm -hmm. I know we're talking about in internal cons, but there is a link to that, is that it's very easy for people to, especially on trains, it's very easy to pe for people to just moan, oh, the train's 10 minutes late. They're very rarely going to tweet, what a great service I've had. Is that an issue when you're looking at, at what's coming back from that kind of um, measurement tool? And then does that also, you know, is, again, is it easy for people to moan about today's you know, work and not be positive? I don't know. It, it's a really good question. You might be surprised to know, actually, that the majority of our social media interactions with our customers are positive. Oh, well, okay. It actually is people right. saying great stuff about us, which is fantastic. That's not to say that there isn't a massive volume yeah. of people asking why their train's delayed or complaining that the loo isn't working. Um, there's a really good example, actually, of when somebody tweeted from inside one of our loos when <laughs> there was no loo roll. Um, and one of our train managers picked up the tweet and was notified by our social media team and managed to get down the train and hand the loo roll to the, the poor gentleman that was in there. And that ended up being covered on the news in China, That's amazing. believe it or not. Um, but anyway... That well is ultimate customer service. It is it? the <laughs> ultimate story. We call it Poo-gate. So, uh, but th but on, the, on the internal side, um, yeah, you will get a lot of people who are expressing concerns and negative comment, if you want to see it that way, yeah. uh, via via social um, but again there's a tremendous amount of positive there and there are there are all sorts of cunning um, bits of psychology applied to how we aggregate data and mash it all up that that can strip out certain things okay um, not just stripping out stuff you don't want to hear but actually understanding the balance of comment and, and mashing that up into something meaningful. Okay. Well, talking to social media, I was fortunate enough to attend a Smile London conference, Smile standing for social media in uh, the large enterprise. Um, Mark Wright of Simply Communicate very kindly invited me along to that, so I thought I'd give him a shout-out for that today. Um, but the reason I bring that up is that they had some live polling of the audience during the event. Um, and one of the questions that was asked was about the platforms being used inside the companies. Almost half of the attendees that pressed their buttons um, were using Office 365, around 8.5% um, already embraced Workplace by Facebook, 7.5% Jive, and then the rest were using some other tools. I was just keen to know what you are using um, or listening to your colleagues at Virgin Trades. Is it just this dashboard tool, or, or you know, are there other things that, you, that you've used in the past or, or, or are using at the moment? So our, our Pulse dashboard, which you know, the, uh, the external version of is the Osometer, that's just one, uh, that's just one uh, mechanism. Yeah. 
we are in the middle of transferring wholly to O365 as an okay. enterprise right now. But weirdly, even before moving to O365, uh, we implemented Yammer as an enterprise, which of course sits within the O365 yes. environment. Um, so it's a bit odd that we did that bit before the rest of O365. It was just the way that our technology roadmap works. Um, I'm really delighted to say that um, we're being independently audited by two of the major auditing um, agencies right now as being the most engaged Yammer network in Europe and one of, the, I think, the top 12 Yammer networks uh, in the world. Uh, so our, our daily uh, engagement level on, on Yammer is something around 68% uh, MAE. Uh, which Yammer users listening will know is is really high. Okay. Um, and how many people have you so got? So we've 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 got on on that particular Yammer network that's being audited. We've got two thousand eight hundred people okay. actives. Okay. Um, now, you also uh, that we're talking about. So as well as social media, you're you said you were working with Ipsos, um, doing more kind of like one to one um, research. And I was interested again to hear that they're actually going into people's homes to do that. Or employees' homes, I should say. So as well as the uh, the pulse measurement yeah. of how people are feeling once every four weeks, which is very new for us, and so yeah. I don't have a huge amount of data yet on whether it's it's you know giving us a great return on investment. I'm confident that it will. The other piece of work that we did even before pulsing was a bit of depth research with with uh, with Ipsos, the the loyalty uh, specialists, and we would. Uh, do that research facilitated by Ipsos, not by Virgin uh, employees, where Ipsos would go into our colleagues' homes and speak with them in a very frank, private, open way about what they loved about working at Virgin Trains and what drove them mad about working at Virgin Trains, how we could improve as a business. And the importance of doing that in the home is that people are in a completely different uh, psychological place mm. uh, and will talk much more differently than they even would in a typical focus group type environment. Okay, and that leads to your, um, again, you talked through your ICE and your ACE um, profiles. Do you want to just talk yeah. through that? Yeah, so um, I know everybody loves an acronym. <laughs> so, so ICE was the, was the kind of uh, parent of all of this stuff, and it was a very, very uh, expansive, detailed customer insight piece. ICE stands for the incredible customer experience. And... It helped us define seven stages of our customer's journey with us from when they're even thinking about traveling, whether they're choosing plane, train, car, all the way through to that meeting or wedding or lovely city break that they were going at the very end and, and helping us to understand how to intervene at each of those seven stages of the journey to make their experience as good as possible. The child of that is the work that I've been working on, which is ACE, the amazing colleague experience. Uh, and again, ACE takes the same methodology by breaking our people's uh, daily lives into a number of stages from them preparing to come to work in the morning and how we can influence how they feel even then, all the way through to what happens when they get home and lock the door behind them at night. Okay. Um, now, Obviously, we talked quite a few different ways that you're um, doing all this this research and, and collecting all this data. So it begs the question: What exactly are you know what data are you looking at, and how are you analysing it? Uh, we have tons of data now, but we live in this this world now. You know that people refer to big data. Yeah. You know the ability to take 
multiple data sets and mash them up as I, I kind of unscientifically describe it and turn that into something meaningful. So we've got a whole series of, of points through which we're listening. I mean, I, I mentioned Yammer. Yammer gives us fantastically rich analytics on um, the sentiment in our business about X, Y, Z things. We have an appreciation um, app called Incredible. Uh, it's our own uh, app. Um, again, that gives us a really good sense on the sorts of things that people are giving praise about. So again, being a digital platform, we get tremendous insight uh, in very easy, uh, easy to understand terms from Incredible. Uh, we monitor uh, what people are saying about us in informal networks. Um, so all sorts of different points which give us meaning and insight into, into our people, and then you collate them all into, into this one sort of you know, me mega uh, uh, insight, insight piece. And so are there any um, new tools that you've been testing out that you can recommend listeners to, to look at at all? Uh, I think the exciting thing is there's loads and loads of new digital tech coming yeah. out. Um, I think my uh, uh, there's no one that I would recommend higher, higher than others necessarily, I think. But what I would suggest to people is don't overlook um, those that are perhaps not digitally native or, or confident in digital. We all have audiences that just don't use our digital channels. Uh, so I think the trick for people in my shoes and perhaps some of the people listening is to find other ways of listening and gaining insight to those people that aren't in the digital or app space. Yeah. Um, it's an easy mistake actually for a number of companies to make, isn't it? When a lot of their employees aren't desk-based and necessarily, I guess, can't be seen texting on their mobile answering app questions yeah. while they're on a train. And that applies to us, whether it's our planes or our trains. Yeah. You know, we, Our people aren't in offices, they're dispersed yeah. and they're moving around a lot. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we don't want them staring at a screen um, yeah. unless it's for the benefit of a customer. But we, we do have to recognize that there must be mechanisms for listening and understanding colleagues other than all this sexy, cool new yeah, stuff. Yeah. I think the attraction of the sexy, cool new stuff is you get very quick results from it in terms of data coming in. You can slice and dice that in a lot of different ways, and it's usually very cost-effective as yeah. well. So final question, because um, you've obviously talked about how you've made lots of changes in internal to the way things are done. Where, where do you actually get your own inspiration for internal comms? I mean, we're here at a conference, but there's obviously things to yeah. look online. What, where's, where's your inspiration uh, from? I'm, I'm a geek at heart. Um, I, I thrive on uh, publications like uh, Wired. Uh, a big long-term reader of Wired. Uh, I love TED Talks okay. on various things. I don't seek out talks at TED that are about internal comms and yeah. engagement. Um, I mean, I saw this really fascinating uh, thing with some scientists from Germany around uh, insect behaviors within the hive and how that translates into perhaps some learnings for people that are managing large dispersed workforces. So. All that geeky science stuff I, I love. Brilliant. Um, that's fantastic, Drew. Thanks. Uh, really appreciate you uh, joining the show and sharing all that insight. Uh, we are back after this break. Consumers are 10 times more likely to buy goods or services if addressed in their own language. Conversus enables international businesses to communicate their message across different languages and cultures. For translation and localization of your PR comms and website content, multilingual desktop publishing, and audio dubbing and subtitling of videos, visit conversus.com. 
Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, here at PR Week's Strategic Internal Communications Conference. And joining me now are two guests from Telefonica. Uh, firstly, we have Sarah Mullins, who is the organization's head of change communication. And alongside Sarah, it's a warm welcome back to the show to Nicola Green, Telefonica's Director of Communications and Reputation. Uh, now, Nicola was one of my guests on show 11 that we recorded last year. So if you like what Nicola's uh, got to say today, do go back in the archives where you can hear more from her. Don't don't feel under too much pressure though <laughs> Nicola. Um, now you two uh, guys have just been presenting here at the conference in a session that was billed as a punchy duo talk, I love that bit, um, on internal stroke external comms convergence. How can you effectively join up all functions of your organisation? So uh, Nicola, uh, do you want to just give us an overview of what your talk was about and then perhaps we can delve a little deeper into the, uh, the detail of it? Yeah, absolutely. So four years ago, I took over as the director of comms and reputation and kind of thought very clearly about what I wanted the team to stand for and what I wanted it to be famous for, if you want, as a, is a good expression. And one thing that I noticed when looking at the team is that we were working in silos and actually we could bring more value to the organization if we joined up and became one team and by one team i didn't just mean one team because you could say that that's probably what we were at the moment but one team that worked together collectively uh, and relied on each other to do the best work possible and that is the journey that i've been on over the last four years and i wouldn't say that we have solved it or i wouldn't say that we're ever going to potentially solve it it's an evolving journey but it's been an exciting one and i think actually it's helped not only the organization but the employees within it as well um, and you know my my team have, have actually felt quite empowered by the process that we've gone through sure Sarah you you were at the uh, at the start of that that whole process to talk, let's go back to that you know you just mentioned four years ago talk, talk us behind the thinking of, of how it all came together really yeah, so uh, I joined O2 five years ago and when I joined I was part of a very successful internal comms team. Um, I, I knew that Nicola was at the time head of PR, but I didn't really understand who else was in PR. I think that's a good indication, whereas now I, I know everybody who's yeah. in our team, and I don't just mean PR, I mean in all of the different functions, I know exactly who to call um, on any issue. So I think that's firstly a really important thing. We get what each other does now, and we have a greater understanding of that. Uh, back then, we did work in silos. We had, a, if you like, big vision to be some kind of world-class communications team but that didn't really involve collaboration across the different areas so um, uh, one example I gave in the conference was that we had different teams communicating with our stores and our customer service teams and our social customers and press in the press office you know and in the end it's obvious it's blindingly obvious that why wouldn't you want all that to be on message and the same yeah. But at the time, just because of ways of working is, and uh, I can reassure our listeners today, it most certainly is. It's, uh, it, it sounds like it was a whole internal comms project in itself, obviously pulling all these teams together. I, th I mean, in the conference, and you just touched on it there, you talked about um, kind of social, you've got corporate corporate communications. I mean, go on, you, I was going to say, you, you, you can list, list the list. Yeah. Public affairs, social media, uh, press office and reputation, proactive PR, internal comms and change communication where I live. So with all those people coming together, I, I suppose what I'm keen to, to sort of find out about, as I said, it's, li it's like an internal comms project in itself, but did anyone feel threatened by those changes? And, and if so, how did you handle that process? 
Yeah, I think with, with all change, some people like it and embrace it and some people don't. And, and we were no different in the internal comms that we were doing with, the, with my team. And some people did leave the organisation as part of the changes that were put in place, but others didn't. Others saw it as an opportunity to help them develop further and develop their different skills that they had. And having that kind of feeling of what it actually brought to them as individuals was actually really powerful in order to help move us in the right direction. And that's what I really majored on, is helping them to be the best they can be, not just in their specialist subjects, but across right all of the other kind of communication disciplines that many organisations are looking for people who are more generalists um, out in the workplace at the moment. So it's a good opportunity for them to learn with us in a safe and kind of warm environment so mm. that they can help develop their skills, which I think is important to any communications individual and, so, and Sarah from you being involved as part of the team how you know what was your sort of initial reaction to it and how, how have you felt now well I can be candid I wasn't sure I was um, a specialist internal communicator um, I felt a little bit a poor relation to PR certainly in the organization I worked in before um, and uh, on that basis I suppose I was a little nervous about whether or not um, we would uh, somehow get lost, I suppose, with um, the commitments to doing great internal communications and realising that sometimes that does need to be different. Um, and I think that the, the, the greatest reassurance I've had from Nicola and the thing I've most appreciated is that when she talks about us working on something together and aligning, that doesn't mean that we just push out exactly the same. We're not just taking what our advert is and just pushing that out to colleagues and press. We're really thinking about what's relevant to our audience, but we're able to do it in a way where we get ideas from each other. So I think it's been a, a, an enormously creative um, experience for a lot of people in the team as well. I personally have still mainly done internal comms, but I've written press releases, I've tweeted tweets, um, I've helped sell in a story. I've worked very closely with our PR agency yeah. on the change communication I'm delivering using media training tactics to help leaders prepare for announcing more tough and challenging changes. Um, I've been media trained myself. You might not be able to tell from this show, but you know, all of these are really valuable yeah. experiences. I wouldn't have had any of them if Nicola hadn't had that vision. That said, at the time, I was apprehensive. Yeah. I was a bit worried about whether or not I could be multi-skilled and worried that perhaps the passion I have for internal comms might not be as valued. Um, and all of those fears were unfounded, but they were valid at the time. Obviously, this is audio, so you can't. We, uh, our listeners can't see, but you're saying that with a massive smile on your face. So obviously, you, you've, you know, it's made a big sort of uh, difference to your, your job. I yeah, guess. it has. Yeah. A real big difference. And I'm not alone, and I guess I'm with the boss, so people <laughs> might say, yeah, all right then. But I know that there are lots of other people who've had an opportunity to do work that they yeah. would not have done had we have not worked in this model. And I have to say it's really powerful working on something in a team with colleagues who have a completely different background to you and different experiences. Do you know what? It makes life more interesting. We spend a lot of time at work. I mean, we work in comms, so we spend a lot of time working. Yeah. And so having some diversity in what you do, um, you know, if anyone's out there thinking, I'm not sure about this, I'd encourage you to just say, you know what, I'm going to let it happen because... I'm pretty sure if you have that approach, then you'll get a good experience Brilliant. from it. 
Well done for talking through those sirens as well. I don't know what it is about my podcast, but it's the third time I've done an interview at a conference and the sirens are going off in the background. But anyway, um, I, d I just want to check, is this just a UK initiative? Because I was looking on your website uh, just earlier and obviously you're in 21 countries. How's that? Yeah, that unfortunately work? they haven't let me loose on those other right, countries okay. yet. It's purely UK at okay. this moment. Yeah. But what, what's been the, ha has there been any feedback you know, in the wider group at all? Yeah, so I spend a lot of time talking to my colleagues in lots of different countries about taking best practices and this is one of them um, and also some of our campaigning work that we've done we've actually done a lot of show and tell with uh, all the other kind of countries and um, some of them have adopted that approach as well okay. I think what we have to respect is that every country is different and it's a different kind of working place mm. that they work in so and um, whereas it may work great in the UK it may not also work in other countries okay I so think there's learnings to be had. We're talking to show and tell. Um, tell us or talk us through some of the, the bits that work well, but also some of the elements that maybe weren't so good along the way. So I think my, my one kind of thing which worked really well was when we were actually facing a, a network crisis um, and as an organisation, you can't imagine how much pressure we were put under in a, in a very kind of short space of time. We had the phone ringing constantly. We had our tweets, um, which we could see on the big screen in front of us, just like going so quickly that you couldn't even read them before they'd gone off the screen. Um, it was immense. We had lots of people contacting us. We had also our employees wanting to know what's gone on as well because they were obviously having customers come in. So we needed to be very clear about our communications and how we kind of made the best situation out of a very difficult situation, made it as best we could be. And I think one of the things that we did in that is, is to everybody experienced lots of different disciplines. So we had the internal comms team who were posting on Facebook. We had some of our public affairs team dealing with press inquiries. It became all hands to the pump and all of us working collectively together. And only by that doing that could we actually contain the kind of situation and get through it. And I think at that point you could almost see light bulbs kind of switching on in people's eyes and in their faces just about how powerful we can be when yeah. we are as one. And I think sometimes it takes a situation like that for it to really cement about why you've made the changes you have. And I think that to me was one of the most powerful moments and something that I use a lot now in kind of educating new people who come into the team just about how we work and how we do things differently. And what about learnings that, that haven't gone so well that you could share with people? To, so if, if someone's listening going, yep, this is how we need to you know, progress in, in our team things that you can avoid that they can avoid because you've been through the experience yeah i think one of it is putting structures in place okay. i think it's like i said earlier it's all very well in having saying that you're going to be one team but unless you give opportunity for the team to come or the leadership team um, to come together and to talk through various different problems it's never really going to work yeah. because people in their clums disciplines are very busy doing what they need to do and you need to almost force people to step back and to think about whether we're doing the right thing. And I think as comms people in general, we don't do that enough. We're too busy on to the next thing, continue moving on, continually delivering for the company. And sometimes you need the opportunity to step back, to think, to discuss, and to get insights from others about what people are feeling. And I think at that point, if you take then on board the conversation that you have in that, you can actually kind of do a step change in the communications and it can actually become even more powerful. And I think that's one of the things. You've got to put governance, you've got to put structure in place to really make sure it works as well as it can. Okay. Sarah, do, do you think this is a model that, you, you know, any organisation should now be looking at or can it be adapted or, or is it specific to organisations like, like your own? 
Um, so there are two answers to that. Okay. The <laughs> one is, I think, it always depends on the organisation. Sure. All businesses have many characteristics that are the same, which is why you can come to a conference like everyone who's come to you today um, here at the PR Week, and you can hear lots of things that might resonate. But m all businesses also have their own unique characteristics, and the biggest um, one for me that drives that is their leadership team and what it is they want and what they're looking for. And we're, in the end, advising our leaders on how best to um, how best to communicate, how best to engage with their employees, how best to engage with external press or stakeholders. So I do think it, it could work in any business if the leadership team had an appetite for it. Okay. And that was one of our top tips. You do need a mandate to want to work in this way. If you have senior leaders, it's not one of those things where, you know, in the past we talked about um, different strategies for internal comms and seats at the table and that where people might say, just keep going, keep trying. This isn't that. I think if your leaders buy into it, brilliant. They'll still not necessarily always remember they bought into it, or they might still want to have different people for different things. And um, Nicola talks um, uh, very clearly about how it's an education process. Okay. Um, so yes, for any business, as long as leaders buy into it, there's a long way of saying that. I could have just said that, couldn't <laughs> I? <laughs> so... Um, Nicola, let's come to you for the final question then. Wh what does the future hold for your converged uh, comms team? But also, do you, do you see that there is a need for internal comms specialists or is everyone now a generalist? No, I, I still believe that specialists have a role to play and I think we shouldn't underestimate just the insight that they bring as being a specialist in their communication discipline. But I think you should also really broaden and get as many people to be generalists as possible. I think it can help on a number of counts, not only helping them, as we've spoken about before, but also about helping on the team. If you've got certain people who fall ill for a long period of time, you've then got a bigger pool to pull on and to make sure that the cons team doesn't fall over. And I think, look, with, e with any communications team, you've got to build a team that's fit for the future. And I believe that that is one way where we'll stay one step ahead of where we're going is by having a mixture of specialists and generalists, but working together as one team and only then will be the truly powerful and deliver the value back to the organization that we deserve to do nice way to finish <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much excellent uh, thanks again to you both that's sarah mullins and nicola green of telefonica uh, we are taking another quick break after which i'll be joined by jenny varley and Dee gosney of hsbc to hear how video and apps are leading the way on their award-winning employee engagement platform hsbc now you're listening to the c-suite podcast to listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csweetpodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to the show in iTunes by searching for the C-Suite Podcast in the iTunes store. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. You're listening to show 35 of the C-Suite Podcast, and for this final section, I've come away from the PR Week's Strategic Internal Comms Conference to the offices of HSBC in Canary Wharf, where I'm joined by two of the key members of their global content and employee digital platforms team, Dee Gosney, who is senior producer, and Jenny Varley, who heads up the global team. And, and we're going to be talking about their award-winning HSBC Now channel, the uh, organization's internal communications video platform that is actually publicly available on YouTube. And I believe at last count, they're up to about 37 awards so and 18 in the last uh, year so not too bad uh, Jenny maybe you can give us a quick summary of the project and how and why it came about so HSBC now was introduced to the organization uh, back in 2012 and essentially it flipped the traditional top-down communications model on its head 
and it was very much employee-led content. Uh, it was a platform to uh, tell the stories of employees, celebrate their achievements, magnify their strengths, and cover topics that are important to them with radical honesty, such as uh, mental health, anything related to LGBT, um, how war zones and disaster recovery can impact on employees, um, living through illness, and celebrating personal achievements inside and outside of work. Um, it was very successful, got very successful very, very quickly. Um, we gathered a huge audience. Some, some episodes reached around 80,000 views. That was huge compared to content um, published previously. It was called the Boss Free TV Project. And then we had to keep thinking about how we keep it relevant. Mm. And we decided to, um, to launch it publicly on YouTube and Twitter in 2013 because we were under huge pressure from employees um, for them to be able to share it with their family and friends and they wanted to watch it outside of office hours. That's interesting because that, that was actually going to be one of my questions, why, why you actually did that. Is it, looking at the stats though, um, you've got over 570,000 views now on YouTube um, and 2,700 subscribers. Um, but on your Twitter feed, uh, where the videos are being shared as well, you've got 52,000 followers. W was there any sort of feedback internally then when you launched it um, publicly? What what, what was the sort well of comments? We, we, we launched it public because of the demand from them. So they were so proud of these stories. They wanted copies of it. They wanted to, you know, to be able to share it and, and show people um, who, are who are important to them in their external networks outside of the office. Um, also, culturally, um, watching video during the office hours is not always seen as a good thing. There were a few cultural issues with the act of actually watching TV and taking time out. Sure. So, um, you know, not, not every line manager would necessarily have been supporting at that time. But we've done a lot to change the culture and video is a really important currency now for content here. Um, and it was by them, they, they demanded that we did this. And so we, we um, lobbied for that at the top of the house and got approval to do so on YouTube and Twitter. See, let's uh, bring you into the, the, the conversation here. I was keen to sort of find out how much actual content you're producing and maybe you can talk about what kind of content it is that, that's going out on the channel then. Well, in terms of all of the producers within the team, we really focus on stories that, as Jenny said, um, share the extraordinary achievements of our employees and our employee base being over 250,000 people in 71 different countries, we've got a huge potential for gathering some amazing stories mm. and telling those. And this is kind of short format content, have you, tr you tried yeah, different Not types? always short form content, um, we have done quite a few series. Um, I produced a series around the internationalisation of the Ramimbi, the opening up of China, but we did that in a very human way, right. using some um, of our mainland China employees, telling their own um, historical sort of family history stories in line with the, the story of the currency. We've also done other um, series and long form content um, and documentaries, uh, which again have been told from a very employee sort of personal perspective, yeah. which have, have really, really landed well. So it must be quite a, um, a huge commitment to put all this amount of content out that, y that you're producing. Have you got a big team involved in it? I mean, how, how many people are, are actually involved in actually editing and, con and, and producing the content? Uh, we have quite a modest team um, within HSBC and we're supported by a production company based in London. Um, as far as the size of the team goes, I, I kind of think that's irrelevant. Okay. I do feel that actually you could have the biggest team available um, and it would make no difference if, difference if you haven't got the right um, cultural environment to create content within a huge organisation. You need to make sure that it's not designed by committee, that you do not have a multi-layered approval process, because as soon as you have that, then it's a huge barrier 
um, to keeping it relevant and consistent and getting the content out in real time. And that's in certain, you know, in large organizations where there are levels of bureaucracy, it's been uh, it's been hard to lobby and make people feel comfortable that they don't have rights to approve content. Right. So how often are you putting the content out then? So we started off as a, a fortnightly program internally. Uh, then we switched to weekly because we had such huge volumes of stories coming in from employees that they wanted to tell. We got to a point then where we had a few um, uh, issues with technology. We weren't, you know, our reach was um, was challenged um, due to various bandwidth issues in certain offices and branches. So we decided to do uh, to do more with less, and we're now experimenting with our schedule at the moment. Mm. Um, we've reduced the program uh, to five minutes. Originally was ten. And we're just seeing which is the best day to, to launch content on, yeah. to see whether we should be doing an appointment to view or keep it ad hoc and make sure we're driven by story rather than schedule. Right. So with media consumption and, and our media habits changing so much and obviously so much content being viewed on, over social, how do you keep it relevant? So we have to sense check our formats constantly to make sure that they are relevant and they um, mirror what employees are you know, consuming in their uh, personal social media channels. So user-generated content is obviously a really important um, consideration. We are in the age of the selfie. And um, although these stories that we've been telling uh, since 2012 are about employees, um, they are created essentially by professional film crews. And they wanted to take filming into their own hands and, and wanted us to sort of inject much more UGC into, into our storytelling in the organization. Um, it just so happened around this time, we had an opportunity in the organization to talk about values. And we decided that we didn't want to talk about it in, in a traditional campaign format where it's top down, it's posters, screensavers. We wanted to make it user-generated, um, led. Um, we had an eight-week window from whatever idea we came up with to deliver within eight weeks. Um, and so we decided that we were going to do user-generated, but we had to find um, a platform and a, and a way to crowdsource large volumes of it. Okay, so leads me nicely onto my next question. What's the platform how did, and how did that come about then? Okay, so we, um, at that point, um, scoured the market um, to, to identify any potential solutions to what we really wanted to achieve. And um, we noticed that a, uh, a London-based startup, I think there were only about five people at the time, called Seenit, um, had won the Evening Standard Startup of the Year awards. So we really thought we, you know, we ought to look into this company because they were at the very early stages of developing um, a video crowdsourcing tool in the form of an app for personal mobile phone devices. And, and the key thing ar around their product was the fact that we would be able to reach employees on their personal mobile devices and, and to kind of bypass the, you know, the, this sort of HSBC firewalls in terms okay. of getting this really valuable user-generated content into our hands. So um, we approached CNET and we decided to partner up with them and, um, and basically, brand uh, their white label product um, against the HSBC Now brand internally which is very established and trusted by employees and um, aligned that with our internal comms channel. So how does that how does that app work then? Okay so the HSBC Now Share app is is a video crowdsourcing app so it's it's really important to understand it is a tool for crowdsourcing content not a distribution channel okay. and that was one of the key challenges we had when we launched the app um, in terms of 
being a highly regulated, complex um, and risk-averse organisation, there were obviously quite a few concerns raised about the prospect of launching a selfie YouTube channel. And we had to do a lot of work to, to educate people and make them understand that actually this was a video crowdsourcing tool that would be aiming at an already engaged audience of employees and inviting them to not only take part in our storytelling, but to become part of the storytelling production process mm. by filming the stories themselves in their own words and in their own way, and then um, and allowing the production team to take that content down from an online virtual studio and incorporate it into our programming, into communications campaigns, and our other um, production projects. What kind of response did you get from people when you start asking, can you start filming your own stories? <laughs> well, I've. I've got to say it sort of comes back to making the environment fit for, for this kind of tool. You know, as Jenny uh, referred to earlier, our audience was increasingly wanting more and better use of authentic um, user-generated content in our storytelling. And um, back in January 2015, we also had, you know, um, a lot of things going on in, in, in the media and the press coverage of HSBC. And so what we wanted to do was to launch something that really gave a voice to employees and, and to help us lead a very authentic campaign around employee values. And that's the first thing that we really tested this new app mm. out out on and um, we we came across many challenges on the route to launch but when we finally had got it over the line um, we had a, an amazing response from our early test users 72% of employees said they thought the app had the power to strengthen communications and relationships across the bank but um, when it came to contributing content they were less forthcoming. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we really had to take a step back at that point and and ask ourselves, you know, what what really is the the, the barrier now? And it, at that point, it was still culture. So um, even though they loved the idea of this new tool, they were still operating within a conservative environment and feeling afraid, really, of embracing it and speaking out. So. What we what we did was um, made some of the early pioneer clips that came through from employees visible okay. on a feed on the app, um, and so just by introducing that small element of interactivity, really helped change things because once employees saw that other people were using it and were able to go and view their clips and like their favourite ones or tell their their colleagues to go and view themselves, it sort of started a snowball effect. And, and really, um, over the course of that first campaign, we received over 4,000 uh, wow. quality clips from you know, a huge number of employees across 23 different countries. So Actually, it's quite phenomenal. On that point, when you say across 23 different countries, did you see any um, sort of territories more uh, enthusiastic, different cultures uh, yes, kicking in there? Yes, and I think this is related to where we're our sort of engaged employees are normally quite active within our campaigns anyway so okay. huge inter huge response from Asia um, and and also uh, North America right. and and um, yeah we we really were quite bowled over by some of the content 99% of that content was shot outside of the office and outside of office hours and that was really a revelation for us because our you know IT security compliance legal teams were very afraid of r quite rightly of um security around yeah. this app and what employees might share um obviously it's all very um you know we curate the content that we make visible so it isn't 
live. Okay. Um, but actually, uh, the content was more about employees' personal lives, their personal thoughts, their personal feelings, mm. um, their passions, what they do outside of office hours, more so than you know company on, on company terms. And how are you getting the app into the employees' hands then? So is, is, is it public, for example? It is now. Right. When we first launched the app, we um, we distributed it on an internal enterprise site. Okay. Uh, the reason for that, again, um, there were some concerns, obviously, that as a non-customer-facing app, uh, we wouldn't want to put it in the public um, sphere and then customers sort of stumble across it and then yeah. become disgruntled because they don't know what it is and they can't use it so for those reasons we went down an internal route but actually that led to a really painful download process employees had to take nine steps just to get it onto their personal phones and obviously that is not a good user experience no. and and we felt could really signal an early death for the for the app so we lobbied really hard to to get um to get the app onto the public sites and it's now it is now on the public app stores fantastic so jenny if you had to give three top tips for anyone listening um to this kind of thinking this whole approach that, that what you've done at, at hsbc now both with the channel and also the, this app um and, and they're thinking right i'm off to launch my company's employee video channel what, what what would they be then um i think i'd start with with the app first and i'd say um the first piece of advice would be take it take a risk but when I talk about taking a risk, I'm actually talking about how you persuade uh, and manage upwards and, and persuade people at the top to take a risk with you and all these different entities to take the risk with you. And the way that we lobbied that is we um, threw a spotlight on the fact that, you know, soon 75% of our workforce will be millennials and, and younger. Mm. And if the digital experience um, inside the organization remains completely out of touch with how they communicate, in you know engage with their networks if it's complete if it's a complete disconnect then you know we lose the war for talent um it just i think engagement would be it would be a crisis and people people would find it very difficult to do their job and share knowledge and interact with with colleagues internally as well so that was one of the main reasons and then i would say learning to fail failure is actually a good thing um it's really important and when you're uh, managing a team, I think people need to feel safe to fail, to try new things, um, to experiment. And I think that's really important to an environment that really is fueling um, innovation and creativity. Yeah. And what's your final tip then? My final tip would be uh, keep moving. At no point can you sit back and relax and think you've nailed it because the, the environment and content is constantly changing and you have to keep checking um, that you're relevant to the audience, that you're keeping up in, in terms of trends, that you're engaging in the channels. So that, that's why we are launching HSBC now on Facebook externally in Q1 2017. That's excellent stuff. Uh, Jenny Varley and Dee Gosney, I'm so pleased we finally got to do this interview with you. So uh, thanks for joining the show. Um, that wraps up another show on this topic of internal comms. Don't forget if you've enjoyed uh, this episode, then there are three more great interviews around internal comms in show 33. So do go back and have a listen to that. Just a quick reminder that you can get updates about this series on Twitter, which is at C-Suite Podcast. And you can also contact me on Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith if you want to get involved in future shows. Um, you can also listen to our archive now on SoundCloud, iTunes, and the TuneIn app uh, just search for uh, the c-suite podcast on any of those but please do subscribe and give us a positive rating and review on itunes if that's your platform of choice um, as that helps us climb up the podcast charts finally there's a link from the soundcloud channel to our facebook page so um, if you can like that too and get involved in the conversation and discussion around any previous shows that would be great that's it for now um, thanks for listening and goodbye